This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Hi, this is Eric Ludy. This particular message was a fun one. In it, I made mention of the speed of light as well as the speed of sound. Doesn't that sound intriguing? However, my direct comparison between the two was not fully accurate since I stated that Mach 2 was measured in miles per second when in reality it's measured in miles per hour. Thus, the comparison I make in this sermon is actually even more impressive and awe-inspiring than you're about to hear. In fact, the speed of light is 430,000 times faster than sound. So stand in awe as you listen to this message. I'm so excited to give this message. It's so special to me. And I think it's touching a point in me, which is one of the most precious, sensitive spots. You know, if I were to ask you, what is your life message? Uh, it's a hard one to just answer. And I've, I've sort of thought that for many years because I have so many opportunities to speak where I come in and they say, Eric, just share what's on your heart. Like, are you, are you sure you want that? Uh, but what is on my heart? That's a good question. What's on my heart? Now, in every situation, I always will just come to the, the spirit of, of grace and just say, God, what do you want to speak? what is on my heart? Well, there's this unique pressing in my heart. And if you've hung around me, you know that it is the glory of Jesus Christ. But that could be said for every Christian. I mean, come on. I mean, isn't that what we're all about is the glory of Jesus Christ? So as I share this message, I think it's going to unveil at a whole other level sort of what moves me. Because as I've just looked at these notes, it's like, oh, I get I want to get up there and give this message. So I am very excited. I have no idea what's going to come out, but we'll find out. The Cave of Suffering, a study in eternal priority. Uh, my kids, well, too particular, Harper's been very interested in angels. Uh, and I mean, she was just shocked to find out that Michael the Archangel was a real character. It's like, really? He's like, real? It's like, he is. He's real. And, you know, so that was very intriguing to her. And, you, you know, many of us know that angels can, you know, detour us and we can get focused on the wrong things. But it's also a truth. It's a reality of a spiritual realm. There's nothing wrong with finding out about angels. God reveals the fact that they exist. Uh, and then Abby's been very interested in heaven. And so uh, just the eternal realms and how this all works. And it brought me back to being a little child again of... My favorite topic that I'd always ask my mom about was heaven. And I would come in and I'd sit on her lap and I'd, I'd just ask her questions that she couldn't answer. You know, just question after question after question of if I could fly, if I could breathe underwater, how big the trees were, you know, what kind of fruit were they, would it taste better in heaven than it does down here? All these intriguing things that still today uh, I am so fascinated by. And so we got this book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven, and it was the for kids version. And it was actually really fun. Any of you that are parents, uh, I, would, I would recommend it. It's just a fun read. We'd just sit around as a family and, and read it. And it would just bring about great conversation. Some of the things are really good, factual things in Scripture. And other things are, well, if this is true in Scripture, then maybe this is true. But the maybe is a key point. We don't know. There's a lot of things we don't know, but there's certain things we do know. 
and it just spikes my, my, my imagination. I get so excited. And so in light of that, that's what I actually was thinking. Hey, I'd like to prepare a message on this. Well, this isn't on that. And yet it sort of is. That's what I mean. I backed into this message in a very strange way. And doesn't that sound like the opposite of a message on heaven? The cave of suffering. I mean, I cannot think of anything more opposite uh, heaven. And yet what you're going to see is that it is. It's a, it's a taste of heaven when you understand this. This is, this is really neat. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. There is a suffering in this present time that Paul is referring to. However, even though there is a suffering in this present time, if you have walked the narrow way of the cross, if you've yielded yourself to Jesus Christ, you've become familiar with this at some level. And even if you weren't a Christian, you know, and you live life on this uh, globe and you're going to find out that there are sufferings in this world. However, I cannot imagine facing those sufferings without hope, without an eternal understanding of truly the context of it. But Paul is giving us context. You see, there is a glory which is to come that will be revealed in and through the saints of God and even in and through this suffering. And so as a result, he's able to face amazing sufferings because he knows something. He knows something that very few of us know in intimate understanding. We know it in basic understanding. If I were to say what happens after you die, you might at least have an educated guess on that. However, the Bible actually goes into great detail in not just this life, but the life to come. And that life to come is called eternal, everlasting. And it's almost hard for us to comprehend, and so we sometimes close it off for fear that our brain will start puffing smoke. Have you ever had that? Whenever you ever get a, a real true look at the universe around us, a true, uh, you try and process through the idea of God being eternal, never having a beginning. Just that one thought is almost too much for us. Like, I, can't, I can't think that. I, he, there has to be a beginning. Our limited, finite understanding cannot comprehend God. And then to say that he has no ending. <laughs> I mean, how, some, it has to have an ending. I mean, we can't handle the fact that there isn't a beginning and an ending. And yet, this God that is so incomprehensible has made himself known. He has put bounds upon himself and revealed himself in and through a human body known as Jesus Christ. And so we can understand that which is incomprehensible, and he has, he has been made tangible, where we can reach out and touch him, we can relate with him. I mean, it's just startling. The choice of the now. What this is about is eternal priority. In every moment of every day, you need to live in light of something. You are making a choice in light of something. If you are living for the now, if you are living for the pleasures of the moment, you're going to make bad choices. It's called the fool's life. And so if you only live for what you crave in the moment, what you feel in the moment, you live off of impulse, you are going to live a life that will truly separate you from God for all eternity. And so, however, there's an opposite side to that, and that is choosing in the here and now to live with a bigger vision, to live for something greater. And that's, of course, what Christianity is. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes about two little boys uh, that are waiting for toys, and one's called Passion and one's called Patience. And they're both demanding, well, I shouldn't say they're both, they're both waiting. However, one of them, Passion, is demanding his toys now. He wants satisfaction now, which is where the term passion comes from. 
Okay, he is moved by impulse and desire. And so as a result, this is what's sort of shocking in the story. Because most of us as good parents are like, you're not getting anything, buster. You go to your room, now you don't get toys at all. However, in the story, passion actually gets what he craves. He gets his toys, but they are not toys that last. They're toys that for a moment or for a season have an enjoyment value. But then that enjoyment ceases and they turn to dust. And that which he had clamored for, he gained, and he gained a pleasure and even mocked patience with his toys. Aha, I have toys, but then his toys disintegrated on him. And then right about the point in time when the toys disintegrate and passion is left holding nothing, in come the real toys, the toys that only patience can ever have. And they're toys whose wheels never pop off. They're, they're toys that last forever, and they truly have a pleasure associated with them. Of course, this is life in the earthen mentality, living for earthen things, and life lived for heavenly things. The choice of the rich man. And so Jesus actually tells a story based on this exact same premise. Luke 16, there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen. That, that's good, okay? That, that, that's very, uh, that, that's a sign of wealth. And for some of you, you're like, you know, I'm not gonna go purple. Uh, but he was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. In other words, he ate very well. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus. Now, this is different than the Lazarus that uh, was the brother of Mary and Martha. However, it is intriguing that it's the same name. Which was laid at his gate, full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. So this beggar, this poor man named Lazarus, lived outside the poor man, or this rich man's gate. And he had sores all over his body. And he, I mean, he longed for even crumbs that would fall from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores, and it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. I'll talk about that in a second. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and see, seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. All right, now let me give you a little perspective on this. We don't have a lot of commentary in the Bible on Abraham's bosom. And so this is really strange. In fact, here's our one little uh, moment for it. There seems to be, in this realm known as Hades, in the earth, these chambers or these hollows, these territories. Some would call them like prison cells. However, there's these dimensions, these places. And when these two men died, they went to, in a sense, the same place, but two different parts of it. And one of, it was, one of them was called Abraham's bosom. The other was called Hades, oftentimes translated as hell. And so some of you are familiar with that. But since there's multiple chambers that are revealed in the Old Testament that are in this earth, it's somewhat strange for many of us. We just know about hell, heaven, hell. And so what in the world's this? Well, it appears that those that died in faith, in, remember who Abraham is, he's the father of faith. And so therefore, those that believed in that word, in the coming Messiah, actually died and entered a different place. It was called Abraham's bosom. And when Jesus died and went to Hades, who did he rescue? Them. That's who he delivered. And so that's the concept here. I'm not trying to build on that. I'm not trying to even teach on that today. However, in light of this, you realize that the life you live on this earth has consequences. It has effects. And so this rich man lived for himself. He was satisfied in this earth. Lazarus had a fairly challenging life. 
However, when he died, he went to a place that ultimately has eternal life associated with it. So it says, and in Hades, he lifted up his eyes. This is the rich man. And being in torments, he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot. In other words, it's an impassable chasm. Neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. So the rich man is saying, could you at least send someone, send Lazarus back to my five brothers, lest they end up here too. Let them know that the life they are living now affects them forever. I don't want them to end up here. Send them back. And it's interesting, the guy's name is Lazarus. Isn't that a fascinating statement? Send a man back from the dead. Listen to what Jesus says. Abraham said unto him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. If someone would be raised from the dead, these people that are living for themselves would repent. What does Jesus say to that? Of course, Jesus, who was raised from the dead, he says, and he said unto him, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. And a guy named Lazarus did rise from the dead. And guess what? They conspired to kill him. Isn't that an amazing statement? You see, there are two ways that we can live this life. One is for the temporal, for the now. And we can live for our pleasures. And if you live for your pleasure in this lifetime, it is very clear in Scripture that you will live forever in torment. If you live in this life a different way, and you choose suffering in this life, and I'll explain what that means, then there is an eternal comfort that awaits you. Gaining the whole world versus gaining all of God. So basically, I'll lay out two choices for you today. You could go after the things of this world and you could gain the entirety of this world or you could spend your life going after God. For what is man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? And that's the key question that Jesus is asking. Look, you could gain all of this. You could spend your life going after all this, but you will lose something. You will lose your soul. I want you all to think about that. Ponder that. Understand that there is an eternal ramification when we live with only a temporal idea. When we live with only the day in front of us and the pleasures of the now, and we lose sight of the eternal realms, we live wrongly. But when we see the eternal realm before us, we live rightly. Gaining the whole earth. So let's just talk about the earth for a second. On earth there is fame, applause, pleasure, power, wealth, travel, exotic foods, exotic people, entertainment, the latest gadgets, and the most technologically advanced means of serving yourself. And guess what? It's all for the taking. So most of us spend our life, especially in our younger years, and we strategize how we can get the most out of life. So even when you're getting educated, what are you thinking? I want to get as much of that as possible, so therefore I'm going to position myself in this life 
to get as much of that as possible. And so the decisions you're making are aiming towards pleasure, towards comforts. Now, you may call yourself a Christian. However, that's your end game. That's what you're after. You could gain the whole earth. You could gain this whole world. There's a lot that it offers. Look at that. I mean, why wouldn't you want that? It's all for the taking. So what I want to do is let's imagine that we had a measuring stick. And God, it was God's measuring stick. You know, it says uh, in God there is no darkness because he's perfect light. Okay, so God is light. I mean, it's an amazing thought to even call God light. I was doing study on light uh, this week, which is a really weird thing to study. But to study light, light, there is nothing in the universe that has been discovered up to this point that is faster than light. Light just sort of is there. If I turned on a light switch, it just fills the room. And in fact, I was studying how fast light works and how fast light moves, which is called the speed of light. But it is extraordinary. I mean, it's just baffling how something could move that fast. So I would, let's just imagine that we measure earth in regards to light. So if God is light, let's just measure earth. All these things of the earth that are available to you, this feast of the earth in a short period of time that is available to you. God is eternal. And this is a limited little window of 80 to 90 plus years that you're gonna be here. It's this little dinky part of all of eternity and we're measuring it against light. What do we come to as a conclusion? So earth and the measurement of light. So the earth is 25,000 miles around. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. That means that light can travel around the entire earth 7.5 times per second. I mean, talk, how in the world? I can't even think fast enough to comprehend that. That's around the entire earth seven and a half times in one second. In light of the expanse of the entire universe and God's creation, earth is but a speck and a pebble. I don't know if you've ever studied the size of the universe, but you start to, you start to have a little panic of something. I don't know what, what it is, but it's so big that it's, it overwhelms you. And if you were to understand that God is, and he encompasses all, and he is everywhere at once, it's too big. It's too big. I can't handle it. I can't handle it, which is why he gave us Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of the fullness of that God that fills all in all. And he's like, he came to this earth and lived amongst us. I mean, it's so incomprehensible, but look at earth. We're going to measure it. All right, that's pretty small. Yeah, so is that the best you got? Yeah, you could inherit that. What's interesting is we will inherit it if we give our life to Jesus. However, many of us are trying to inherit it now. We want all of its pleasure now, and as a result, we lose it. You can go after these things now. This is nothing in light of the eternal realms. Nothing. It's but a speck. It's but a, uh, but a pebble. So how about gaining the heavens? You can gain the whole earth, but have you ever studied the heavens? the inheritance of God, the inheritance of Jesus Christ, all things. He is over all things. He created them all, and now he rules them all. He has authority over all of it. In heaven, there is Jesus forever. So I gave you the list of what the world has. You know, the fame and the exotic stuff and the technology, all that. I mean, it's really cool stuff. Let's look at what heaven has. In heaven, there is Jesus forever and always. There is the intimate and personal love of the Redeemer, the joy of the Lord, peace that passes all understanding, the boundless creativity of the Creator Himself, and the sheer vastness of the sovereign God. So let's measure heaven 
by that same measuring stick. I mean, this is so overwhelming. I, I was pondering that this this week, and I can't even come close. My, I had smoke coming out of my ears. So I'll see if I can get some smoke coming out of your ears too. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second. For a bit of perspective, the speed of the fastest moving passenger jet is Mach 2, or roughly 1,550 miles per second. That is 120 times slower than the pace of light. Okay, that's the fastest moving. I mean, remember the sound barrier? That's Mach 1. That's the sound barrier. In most of our lifetimes, that's been what has been discovered by the fastest moving jets. I mean, they broke the sound barrier. Now we're up to Mach 2. And Mach 2, we could mock it. It is a joke next to light. I mean, come on. So now let's, let's, so with this understanding of the movement of light, let's start to measure the universe. Earth can be traveled around at the speed of light 7.5 times per second. To get to the moon, light would take one second. That means it's 186,000 miles away, which is a long way. I don't know if you've ever gone on a trip for the weekend. Uh, 186,000 miles, but that takes light one second. To get to, the, to get to the sun, light would take eight minutes. Okay, that, by the way, if light is moving that fast, it shows you how far the sun is away from us. That's a lot of miles. To get to the nearest star system, the Alpha Centauri, light would take four years. By the way, if you want to see how long it would take if you were moving at Mach 2 in a passenger vehicle, multiply that by 120. In your lifetime, you would never get there. And neither would your children or their children's children. That's just the closest star system. Moving Mach 2 without taking a fuel break to get to the nearest galaxy, which is a small galaxy, by the way. This is just a dwarf galaxy. It's the Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy. Light would take, light would take, which is moving at 186,000 miles per second. It would take 25,000 years. Ah, uh, what? Adam, if he had boarded a vehicle moving at the speed of light at the dawn of Earth's creation, would be 25% of the way to the Canis Major Dwarf Galaxy right now with 19,000 years remaining. <laughs> what? To get to the very edges of the nearest major galaxy, which is the Andromeda Galaxy, this is just the next major galaxy, light would take 2.5 million years. Light would take that long. Multiply that by 120 if you're moving Mach 2 in a passenger vehicle. It is estimated that there are roughly 200 billion galaxies in the known universe. Those are galaxies. We are in the Milky Way galaxy, and just to get to the edge of it takes 25,000 years. Moving at the speed of light. So when we measure the heavens by light, even as our standard, we stand back in awe. You can inherit this earth. Light passes around at 7.5 times in one second. Or you can inherit the kingdom of heaven. So you could ask the question, what do I need to do? Don't choose the rich man's life. You see, you have one life to live, and it's a diddly squat life at that. It's a little short breath in light of eternity. You have one life to live. You live it wisely and rightly. 
a hollow. So this is one of the key concepts of a space or a cavity. When we deal with what's in the earth, you know, hell is oftentimes understood to be in the earth. So it's having a space or a cavity inside, not solid, empty, or for our purposes today, a cave. Remember, I named this message a cave of suffering. And so it's a hollow. It's a hollow of suffering. Now, what's interesting is that if you study Christianity and you understand the eternal realms, you recognize that Hades is a hollow. It's a hollow in the earth, and it's eternal torment and suffering. And then there's also a cave here on this earth. And you think of David. Remember David and his mighty men? And where did he hide out from Saul? In a cave. And what's also amazing is this word, having a space or a cavity inside, not solid, empty, a cave, is exactly what Jesus Christ is. And he opened up for us when his side was opened. There was an opening for us to enter. And where did Jesus go and where was he laid? He was laid in a hollow in the earth. And he overcame that hollow. And that hollow was left open to him. Which means death, the grave, that hollow cannot clamp down on him. And so you make a choice in this life. If you refuse Jesus and you refuse to step inside of that hollow now, that hollow of suffering now, then you will forever be in that hollow. Door locked, stone in front, sealed, and you will never get out. But if you choose to climb into that hollow now by faith, into Jesus Christ, your suffering will be now. But that grave, that hollow, cannot bite down on you. The stone is rolled away. You walk into that hollow, and guess what? You walk out a free man. And it can never bite down on you. The grave has no more sting. So there's two hollows. Let's talk about the hollow of hell real quick. There's Tartarus, reserved for angels. Sheol, Abraham's bosom, which we described for those of faith. Hades, the abyss, and also the lake of fire. To be honest, I'm not an expert in these matters, and I can't answer a tremendous amount of questions. I just know what the Bible says. But there's, obviously God gives us what we need to know and then seems to go silent on everything else. It's sort of like, hey, guys, that's not the focus here. I'm saving you from it. Okay, let's focus upward, not downward. The sobering description of this tomb. So this is a tomb. This is a hollow. And it is reserved for us, typically understood as the grave. And the grave has a bite to it. And it is deserving. It has legal right to your life if you have not believed in the Savior. Because you have sinned, you deserve that grave. And that grave will eat you forever. There is no escape from it. And so the sobering description of this tomb, it's everlasting, it's never-ending, it's unanesthetized, which means there is no pain relief in it. There's no Tylenol. Ever-conscious torment, pain and suffering. It's eternal damnation, eternal judgment, vengeance and eternal everlasting fire, shame and everlasting contempt, everlasting punishment, everlasting destruction, everlasting chains, the smoke of the torment ascends up forever and ever, It's torment day and night forever and ever. It's the wrath of God poured out without mixture. And no rest is offered day or night. And there is no break from the horror, from the nightmare, from the pain forever and ever and ever. It's interesting. You know how I was just describing the heavenlies? You know how hard that is for us to comprehend too? I mean, we literally cannot comprehend it. It is too extreme for us. And yet, most of us end up bickering over the issue like God wouldn't do that. God has made a way 
for you to escape that. So that's what God has done. God has expressed his love not through an empty hell, but through the cross. And he has made a way for us to actually enter a hollow now, empty a cavity inside of himself now so that we would be saved from that cavity, from that hollow. The miserable hollow of hell. It's forever. It's cut off from light. Could you imagine eternity without light? It's inescapable misery. It's without reprieve, without provision, without sleep, without numbing agents, without a deliverer. There's no more savior. See, right now, you may be living in rebellion, but you can at least know in the back of your mind at least there's a savior. There, there is no deliverer. There's no more savior. It's lonely and abandoned. It's not a big party. It's sealed with a gigantic stone too heavy for you because you're a dead man. You can't roll it away. You see, a dead man, I don't know if you've ever seen a dead guy push away a big stone. If you're dead, you can't remove that stone. You have no ability. Even if you were Hercules, you're dead. It's fiercely guarded lest you ever venture to leave. So think about the graveside of Jesus Christ. It's sealed and there's guards posted about it. Lest someone try and steal that body. Well, there's your gravesite. There's only one that can bust out of it. And he already did it 2,000 years ago. And he says, hey guys, enter into this hollow now. By faith, get inside of me. I'm the only one that can overcome that grave. If you're not inside of me, that grave overcomes you. We are dead and in a sealed and guarded grave. Who can save us from this horrible state? You see, that's what leads us to understand the good news. At a whole nother level to realize that that is literally the legal end, the rightful end of every single one of us in here. And yet because God so loved us, he gave us a means of escape. He gave us another hollow. The grand adventure of giving up life now. It's interesting, but if you study just history, you'll notice that there, there's an adventure streak in the human race. It's really odd uh, to look at it because that doesn't mean that they, these people love Jesus. They just, they're, they're death-defying. They're, they're daring. They'll jump from planes, high cliffs. People are willing to risk life to try and find life. They want a thrill. They want something. And they're willing to trade out life as they know it to find this something. Isn't that weird? I'm not like that. I, I'm fine without risk and without danger. And so God like shoves me into this dangerous life. It's like, God, what am I doing here? Now, it's like I sort of recognize it from a completely different angle. I'm not a thrill seeker at all. And yet my life is very thrilling. The grand adventure of giving life now. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings. So this is in Hebrews 11, which is talking about those of faith. And what it's mentioning is not something that most of us would expect. When talking about the, the life of the believer, the life of the faithful, wouldn't you expect, and then they you know, were fed grapes and fanned, you know, and then they just had pleasures forevermore? Instead, what we see is that as long as they were on this earth, it says others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. You see, there's going to be a resurrection for every single one of us. God promises it. However, there's a resurrection unto death and the lake of fire, or there's a resurrection unto eternal life in Christ Jesus. New body, spent with Jesus forever. I don't know. You could pick which one. And these guys are saying, hey, I don't want the first. I want the second. I want Jesus. I want to resurrect in him. 
Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Listen to this. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Well, that plays well into my message, doesn't it? Where did these faithful ones live? Live in a hollow in the earth. Isn't that an interesting statement? You see, they chose this life to enter the grave. It was this side of their life that they entered into the grave. And as a result, they live. But it's when you try and hold on to your life on this side of life that you end up on the other side being in the grave. The strange call to risk everything in order to get something more. So here's uh, the Ernest Shackleton request. I don't know if any of you have ever read uh, the book Endurance uh, about the story of Ernest Shackleton, but I mean, it is, it is quite something to read about the exploration of Antarctica. And so this is ex- excerpted uh, from a book, Quit You Like Men, and it's the little advertisements uh, that Ernest Shackleton posted in some English periodical uh, so that uh, he could get people for his expedition. Some of you may have heard this before. It's really good. So Ernest Shackleton, when he was about to set out on one of his expeditions, printed a statement in the papers to this effect. Men wanted for hazardous journey to the South Pole. Small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger. Safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. Who in the right mind would say yes to that? Isn't that interesting? In speaking of it afterward, he said that so overwhelming was the response to his appeal that it seemed as though all the men of Great Britain were determined to accompany him. (laughs) Who would want that? You see, there is something in us that wants a battle to fight. We want an adventure to go on. We want to feel alive. And yet, ironically, the Christian has the answer to that. It's not in going to Antarctica and having all your extremities be frostbitten. It's actually found in giving up your life as you know it and dying so that you can live. And that's not how we would understand it, though. So there's men all over the world that are like, I I just, I want to do something risky. I want to find that thrill. I want to find something more meaningful. This life is just, it's not it. I'm missing something. Well, if you want to find it, there's a little hollow on the side of Jesus. Climb in. I don't want to associate with that guy. Well, unless you do, you're dead. C.T. Studd said this, last June at the month of the Congo, this is uh, a long time ago, there awaited a thousand prospectors, traders, merchants, and gold seekers waiting to rush into these regions as soon as the government opened the door to them, for rumor declared that there is an abundance of gold. In the Congo, very few men that didn't grow up in the Congo could survive. The reason was their bodies were not ready to handle the influence of diseases that were native to the Congo region. And so as a result, but when they found out that there was gold there, these men risked their life to go find that gold. It's a weird pull that gold, or the, the stuff of this earth, has upon men. If such men hear so loudly the call of gold and obey it, can it be the ears of Christ's soldiers are deaf to the call of God and the cries of the dying souls of men? Are gamblers for gold so many and gamblers for God so few? Why is it that men will risk everything for gold and yet hold on to everything when it comes to God. Don't you understand the extreme value of who God is? Gold? Come on. It's temporal. 
It's of this earth. Measure it by light. There's nothing there. The streets in heaven are paved with it. You get a heavenly mindset, an eternal priority in place, and suddenly you understand, I'm not gonna risk everything for gold. I'm gonna risk everything for God. The invitation to the cave. David therefore departed thence and escaped to a cave of all places. It's called the Cave of Adullam. And I, I, I really love the Cave of Adullam. There's something about this place that really stirs me. Okay? And when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And every one that was in distress and every one that was in debt and every one that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them. There were with him about 400 men. So what takes place in this cave? David finds hiding in this cave for near 11 years, you know, in and out. Now, this is a small little nation known as Israel, and the ruling party known as King Saul has all military control. So all of the military powers in Israel are focused on hunting down David. And guess what? They cannot find him. How could you not find David in this little diddly squat nation known as Israel? Uh, have you checked around? I mean, he has to be here somewhere. He is there, but he's hidden in a cave. What's interesting is these 11 years of David's life are, are a season of massive persecution. He, there was 21 assassination attempts on David's life in this period of time. Okay, so in other words, this is a season of persecution. Who's the rightful king of Israel? David. And yet he's not acknowledged as such. Who's the rightful king of this universe? Jesus. Who's the rightful ruler of this world? Jesus, but he's not acknowledged as such. And those that follow him go where he is. Where was he? He was in a cave. Where are we? We're in a cave. This is the season in the caves. You see, this life right now is not the end. This is a season. It's a season of persecution, just like David had. And soon he will come into his full position. And soon his mighty men will rise with him. They will ascend with him. When he takes his throne, they surround him. Men wanted for hazardous journey to the cave of Adullam. So we're going to stick something in the newspaper. It's just like, well, Ernest, it seemed to work for Ernest Shackleton. Let's try it. Men wanted for hazardous journey to the cave of Adullam. They will be hunted, despised, and in constant danger. There will be no pay, no plumbing, and no pillow. Guaranteed suffering, tribulation, and persecution. They'll be outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed. Rejection from society, certain. But they will share in the immense glories of David's kingdom when he gains his rightful throne. Hey, there's your choice, guys. You can stay with Saul. I know, Saul has a nice downy pillow, cush, comfortable environment. Or you can come to the cave. There's no pillow there. No plumbing there. Uh, you see... Uh, I don't know about you, but your natural instinct is inclined towards making a choice in the here and now that will appease your human side. And so as a result, many of us, we want to pay homage to David in his cave from a distance. It's like, I'm with David. So if there's a vote in Israel, it's like, do you vote for Saul or David? I mean, we come up, it's like, is this vote private? I mean, is, it, is anyone gonna know what my vote is? Uh, and if it's private, David. If it's public, uh, you know, I, I just want to conscientiously not be a voter. Uh, I just don't want to go on record as voting anything. You see, we don't want to go public with where we stand on this because we know that if Saul finds out that we have inclinations and loyalties towards David, we lose all 
of his support. And so those that are truly with David, where do they stand? They go to the cave. If you're with David, go to the cave. You don't hang out with Saul and act like you're with Saul. Meanwhile, send some roses off to David every now and then. You leave everything and you go to be with David. Saul is symbolic of the first life. He's the first king. He's symbolic of the flesh, the old life, the old man. That one that we're supposed to put away. We're supposed to say goodbye to. And we're supposed to leave it for the second, Jesus. The new covenant is the second. Jesus is the second man. He's the last Adam. He is the one who saves. The invitation to the cross. Men wanted for hazardous journey to Calvary's cross. Death to self, relinquishment of all control, utter humbling of the inner man are prerequisites to the journey. Guaranteed suffering, tribulation, and persecution. Rejection from society, certain. Benefits, too great to calculate. I I can't even list truly the benefits for you. I, I would do it a disservice. The benefits are so, so amazing that you can't even lay them out and calculate and put some kind of quantity to it, some value to it. Any more than I can measure the universe for you, I can't say what the value. I mean, could you imagine one of you inherits the Andromeda va- uh, uh, galaxy? That, that's your, your inheritance. You ruled well this life and maybe, you know, the church or the family that you had. And so as a result, you inherit the Andromeda va- galaxy, which is bigger than even the Milky Way galaxy that we're in right now. And that's one of 200 billion galaxies. And you're thinking, I only got one? I mean, whoa! I mean, we can't even comprehend benefits too great to calculate. And you're holding on to your little pebbles down here? Give it up. Pour it out like Mary of Bethany did at the feet of Jesus and say, you are my great reward. Knowing the cost. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Well, that's always been a strange statement. It's like, are you saying I'm supposed to hate? And so most people would say, and most theologians, most pastors would probably agree, that doesn't mean you're actually supposed to hate. It means in contrast. It means that your love for Jesus is so extreme that that behavior is like, this is not what controls me. My loyalty is to Jesus Christ. That is the priority of my soul. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You know what a cross is? A cross is a form of suffering. And if you do not bear your cross and pick it up and say, I'm willing, I'm willing. I know what this thing does to me. It's gonna kill me. I know it. I know it up front, but I'm picking it up and I'm following. Because that's the only way that you are ready to truly follow Jesus. Anyone who wants to come to the cave with David, don't you know what that means? You associate with David, that means you're standing against Saul. That means you're hunted and despised just like he is. 21 assassination attempts on his life, why do you think it's going to be any different for yours? For which man, which of you, intending to build a tower, sits not down first and counts the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Or what king goes to make war against another king, sits, down, sits not down first and consults whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Uh, whoa, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, I'd say, believe it. Let me read it again for you, just in case some of you blurred over. 
So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. Are you willing to give up the things of this earth? Are you willing to give up all that inheritance that you could try and gain now here on this earth for something far greater? The kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ. The fullness of his presence always, evermore. Knowing the benefit. Benefits too great to calculate. I love that line. For I consider, says Paul, that the sufferings of this present time, living in a cave, bearing a cross, being stoned and carried outside the city, being shipwrecked, being scourged uh, five times with 39 lashes. That is pretty extreme, by the way. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Well, this is nothing, guys. Don't you know what's ahead? Don't you know what's before us? This is nothing. Paul's saying these things, and usually he's in prison when he's talking. That's where he wrote a lot of his letters. Well, who in the world ever thinks this way? He's singing songs in prison cells. What does this guy know? What leads a man to live in a cave? Well, I just want to tell you, it's not the cave. You know, some of you are like, oh, I don't know, maybe caves are nice. Maybe these guys know something about caves. No, no, most people don't choose caves as their living quarters. It's not the cave. It's the beloved one who lives in the cave. Why would someone be attracted to go to the cave where David is? Not for cave living, for being with David. He is fairer than the children of men, it says about our great God, our Messiah, Jesus. The chiefest among 10,000, the bridegroom, the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valley, a bundle of myrrh, a cluster of henna blooms. Yea, he is altogether lovely. He is my beloved and my friend. Even if heaven were a dark cave, if that is where our fair king lives, then let us go to the cave. Could you imagine? I mean, what's amazing about this message is in this lifetime, you could waltz in the open air and hear the birds chirping. Instead, you choose to go to a cave and live? Into a little hollow and live inside of the work of the sufferings of Jesus Christ? Who would do that? Who would go to a prison cell when they could traipse about the countryside skipping? Instead, we say this life belongs to Jesus and I give it to him and however he wants me to live it, even if it be in the hollow of a prison cell this side of eternity, I say yes. But what if for the rest of eternity, heaven was a little cave? Now, it's not, but let's imagine for a second that heaven was a cave. Even if heaven were a dark cave, if that is where our fair king lives, then let us go there. That's where I would want to be for eternity. I'd want to be where he is. Haven't you ever met him? Haven't you ever beheld his glory? With Jesus in the dark cave, he gives songs in the night. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. So who's our hiding place? Who's our rock? You know what the cave of Adullam is even referred to in the Hebrew? The rock. That's what it's called. And who's the rock? Jesus so it's an Old Testament picture of a New Testament deliverance. It says, thou art my hiding place. He's our cave of Adullam. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. In the night his song shall be with me. I don't care how dark it gets. Guess whose song is there? You have Jesus 
singing songs over you. Can you imagine how beautiful his voice is? Even in the darkness of a hiding place, a cave? Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. It's dark out. They're in prison. And they sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Our place is his place. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. Remember when I measured his place and uh, we put some mileage on it uh, with the measurement of light? That's his place. The one who lives in unapproachable light has condescended to become a little baby. For behold, the Lord, Jehovah, is coming out of his place and he will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. Huh? I will yet bring an heir to you, O inhabitant of Marashah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam, shall come to a cave. Isn't that an amazing thought? His place is our place. So the one enthroned in heaven, the one who lives in unapproachable light has condescended to come here to this earth. And then what has he also condescended to do? To open up his side and say, step on in. I have died the death that otherwise would have been yours. I have been buried in the grave that was your grave. But I've also busted out of it. And now my life is shared with you. If you will humble yourself and believe on me and give up the things of this earth in order to inherit the things of heaven, then my life and my abundance and my place where the soles of my feet tread is yours. Even when we were dead in sins, God has quickened us together with Christ. Quickened means to make alive. By grace you are saved and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The story of invitation. So let's go back in time. This is one of my favorite thoughts uh, to ponder. And that is that you've always grown up, and I don't know if I should use me or if I should use you. It'd be more enjoyable maybe to use you in this story. So it's you. And you've always lived in Saul's kingdom. You've always been satisfied in Saul's kingdom. In fact, you've heard rumors about this David character, you know, that is a threat to Saul's kingdom, and as a result, a threat to all national security in Israel. And you want him dead just as much as Saul does, not because you know anything about him, but just because he's a threat to your comforts. You don't want a different king. You're fine with Saul. Saul's done you well. I mean, the reason you even have, you know, a couple sheep and some goats is because Saul has bestowed his favor upon you. And so as a result, you're perfectly pleased with life. Well, that is until now. You ever notice that you come to a place where it's just like something's not right? There has to be more than this. You know, your sheep and your goats used to satisfy you, your nice little village, you know, homestead. You know, it was fine. But now Saul, you know, he's been saying a few things to you that were rather harsh. And you, you were a little hurt by that. It's like this guy maybe isn't as nice as you originally thought. And he seems to be controlling you. The last time you were just asking some simple questions, he seemed to grab your left arm and squeeze it. Say, you didn't think that thought, did you? Like, no, 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 sir, I I didn't think that thought. He's like, what was that? And so you've been in your little cottage, and you've been pondering, but you see, even to think a thought that is antithesis or against Saul is like betrayal. It's it's like Benedict Arnold type of stuff. And so you watch your thoughts. I don't want to think bad thoughts about Saul. I, I, I just, I'm just wondering, I'm just wondering, I'm, I, I don't want to think any bad thing. He's done good for me. Okay, I have some sheep, I have some goats, you know, I, I'm fine. I have a little, my little cottage. What was that, though? Why is it that I feel so dead inside? Why is it that I feel a heaviness, an, an oppression, 
in my life. So uh, you've been in the loyal service of Saul. And have you ever, when you're in the loyal service of Saul, what does a Christian look like to you? I mean, those idiots that actually believe this stuff. And it's like, come on, cuckoo. It's like, what's wrong with these people? I mean, where does this emotion come from? It obviously can't be real. It's some whipped up thing. And so could you imagine if you're in your little cottage and there's a little passing through of like a little parade, but not a purposeful parade. It's just David and his men are passing through your village. And you hear word of it. And someone's like, hey, did you know that David and his men are passing through the village? You know, board up your house. You know, we don't know what these guys are going to do. And so they're coming through and they're singing as they're going through. They're just walking down the road and they're singing. In fact, David's doing a little dance and he has such a beautiful baritone voice that's coming out. You're so intrigued. And you have to take a peek. I mean, there's just no way you, you can just stay there with your, your windows boarded up. I mean, you've heard the, the dangers that are associated with David. You've heard about the cuckoo-ness that all his men that follow him go, cuckoo, and they go crazy weird, and they live in caves. Well, that's not going to happen to you. And so you vowed that that'll never happen to you, and you have your house boarded up, and you're not about to look, but you hear the singing. And there's just something. I mean, how do you explain what it is? But you have to take a little peek. And when you take a peek, you see David. You see something that you've never seen before. You see a smile on his face that belies all reality to you. You've never seen such joy. And you know what was extra weird? He looks straight at you. And you, like, close it up real quick. Like, oh, what was that? Then you look again. And you see his men after him. They have the same face, the same radiance, the same joy. What is this? What is this? And you're being stirred, but you feel like you're betraying something, even as you were thinking it. No, no. No, no, I'm not attracted to that. I don't want that. They live in a cave. They live in a cave. Tell yourself that over and over. They live in a cave. I do not want what they have. I do not want what they have. I want what they have. No, did I say that? No, I do not want what they have. The growing discontent. What is it? They, they left town. You were fine, weren't you? Well, you weren't quite fine. But now you're really not fine. Now you've seen something. You would give everything. You'd give your sheep, your goats, your whole house if you could just get that smile on your face. If you could get whatever that was inside of them, that radiance, that something, that sense of of life, you'd give everything. And you're thinking, I'm not thinking that thought. But I would. No, I'm not against Saul. I'm really not. I'm not for David. I'm just, ah. You're in a wrestling match because you always vowed you'd never be with David. What is going on inside of you? And the strangest thing happens. You look over at your dresser, and there's a letter on it. And it's sealed with one of those old-fashioned seals, like wax and seals. And instinctively, you even know where it came from. You have no idea how it got there, but you know what it is. You know who it's from. It's from him. How did he get inside your home? How did he get that letter there? How did he know you were thinking these thoughts? How does he know? Because that's... That's treason. To even look at that letter would be treason to Saul. And yet, have you ever had that magnetic pull? You have to. You even know what it will cost you. You even have a sense of that, that to touch that letter and to open it, to even look upon it, is a betrayal of everything you've ever said and vowed to in your life. And yet you can't help it. You just remember the smile. You remember the joy. You remember his beauty. 
and you crack open the seal. The invitation says your name on it. Please, would you leave the life you now know and come to be with me? I love you. Meet me at the cave of Adullam. Signed, David. Great. Because your heart is burning. Your mind is swimming. You would do anything to have what he has. However, the reality of the call of Christianity is now before you. You need to give up something in order to gain that which you truly desire in your life. And you can see it. It's clear. You see, we're supposed to be presented with the gospel at this level of clarity. You follow Jesus, you give up Saul. You can't do both. How do you think David or Saul are going to feel? If Saul finds out that you're secretly serving David, he kills you. If David finds out that you're secretly serving Saul, he's booting you out. There's no way. You can't be both sides. You choose who your master is. You can stay in your cottage with your sheep and your goats and be miserable and die and be separated from that face, that love and that light forever. Your choice. Or you could leave all of this and you could go where he is. It's a cave. It's a cave. It's a cave. The pursuit. Imagine saying goodbye to all that you've always known. You pat your sheep, your goats. Maybe leave a note. I'm gone. Please take care of the goats. The sheep need to be fed at least once a day. But you say goodbye to it all. Your cozy bed. Even look at your pillow one last time. It's like, oh, can I take it with me? And it's like you know that you have to By stealth, make it to the cave. You can't take anything with you. You need to leave it all. And so there you are, walking out, and you begin your journey towards where he is. I don't know where you're at in this journey. Some of you have already arrived at the cave. Some of you have lived in that cave maybe for many years. Some of you have been esteeming David as he's going down the road and calling it Christianity. Meanwhile, living in your salt-built cottage, are you willing to leave it all so that you could have that cave with Jesus Christ for all eternity. Now you arrive at the cave, and you see, I don't know what you were envisioning, but this is a little more intense than you were originally thinking. Because guess who comes out to meet you? All of David's mighty men, with their swords drawn, at your throat. And you're like, excuse me? Now you're a little skinny uh, weakling, okay? Look at David's mighty men. I mean, even when they pulled out their swords, it was like instantaneous. And they even flipped it around a couple times, went around their back. And <laughs> You ever felt that when you're first coming to Christianity that everyone seems to have a hold on something better than you do? They know how to pray and you don't. They know how to study the Bible. Of course, everyone does, except for you. That's just not true, but that's the way we can easily feel. We can feel intimidated even at the door. And so the mighty men of David pull out their swords and they can be ruthless at times. Why are you here? You have no right. Look how skinny you are. Do you even know how to wield a sword? And what's your answer? I know how to care for a goat. (laughs) 
You don't have any worthiness to be here. By what merit can you enter the test at the door? You see, this is, this is called the test of faith. What is your worthiness to enter into the presence of God? What answer do you give? Do you say, well, I, I can learn. I might be able to swing a sword like you one day. I mean, if my muscles had been built throughout my life, I bet they'd be as big as yours. Is that your answer? Or do you reach in your pocket and remember that you have an invitation from him? That it's his work that has saved you. I'm invited by the king of kings and I've come by faith that he would accept me. That is where my confidence lies. It lies in his nature. It lies in his promise. The questioning voices. He's weak and learned in battle and pathetic in appearance. Can't you just feel this? I mean, I don't know what you feel like next to David's mighties, but you just sort of feel extra skinny. I already feel skinny, but extra skinny. It's like he just shrunk. He can't swing a sword, and they're right. I don't have any idea how to swing this thing. They stick it in my hands like, ah, how do you lift this? You, you know, I'm like two hands and a knee trying to lift it up. And these guys are like swinging it around with one finger. It's like, what is that? And then get, guess what? They really get you on this one. He has despised our king and our work. He despised this very cave. Is that not true? Yes, it's true. I've stood against you. I've tried to harm you. I've tried to root you out and get you killed. I'm guilty. I've even despised this very cave. And here you are, standing before it saying, let me in. Isn't that the greatest irony? The thing that you despise more than anything and worked your life to try and defeat, now suddenly you're desiring more than anything to get inside of it? He has labored alongside Saul, they say, to hinder the rise of David unto his rightful throne. Guilty. He is unworthy of this cave. Do you have an argument to that? They're right. The voice of religion will always get you. You see, if you are looking to your own pockets, if you're looking to your own strength, you have to look to the only one who can bring you into that cave. He brings nothing to the table but weakness. They're right. I have nothing to offer the king of kings. I like this. You see, there you stand, weak, unlearned, untrained, unable to offer anything. You're not a mighty man. You're a mighty weakling. That's what you are. You know nothing about cave life. You know nothing about how to suffer, how to use a rock for a pillow. You don't even know what it's like in a cave. You've never been in one. And so you stand there weak. And in that very moment where you're actually pondering, turning around, suddenly you hear the booming voice. I invited him. He is mine. Could you imagine? He parts the way of the mighties. And he stands in front of you with that tender gaze. Even though he has a boom of authority that will scare every single one of us. It's affection for you that caused him to even write the letter to you and to invite you. And it's because he loved you. And now that you're there, the last thing he wants to do is scare you off. So his voice changes into a very soft, loving tone. Looks you in the eye and he says, I chose him. I have a hope and a future for him. 
let him through. Don't block his way. He is no more undeserving than any of you, and I will make him a mighty man. Come, I have a spot for you in this cave. The reality. You may have a rock for a pillow. Let's talk about what it means to serve Jesus Christ in this life. I know you're Americans, most of you. Some, there's some Canadians and some Australians and maybe some other uh, people that have... Oh, there's a Faroe Island guy. Uh, <laughs> however, we are used to comfort. We're used to the things that bring us pleasure, even as American Christians. But I want us to count the cost afresh that historic Christianity has been willing to go without a pillow, has been willing to suffer on hard, either concrete or dirt, prison floors, have food full of bad things, rotten stuff with things crawling around in it. And we say, yes, Lord, to be with you. So you may have a rock for a pillow. You may live in a cave. You may be hated by Saul and all his firstborn cronies. Get this. You are loved by the shepherd king. You may not look sane in the eyes of the world, but you have the king of kings as your personal rescuer. The privilege of being where he is. You guys even know what the name David means? In the Hebrew, the word ahava means love. So let's stick a duh on the front and on the end of ahava. Duh, ahava, duh. I'll do it faster, sort of like a Sesame Street type of thing. Duh, ahava, duh. Duh, ahava, David. See? You just learned some Hebrew. That's actually what his name means. The one who is loved. The one who is love. Beloved is the most typical translation of it. The one who is so lovely. And guess what? It's not just that he is lovely. It's that he has such love to give. He is love. You are invited. Isn't that an amazing thought to think that you personally are invited to this cave? Isn't it funny that here by the end of this message, you're like, I want in that cave. Hey, what about me? What am I, chopped liver? I want that invitation. You peeking out the, the blinds of your house right now? You seeing his majesty? Are you seeing his grandeur? The one who is enthroned in the heavens? The one who doesn't take 2.5 million years to get to the Andromeda galaxy? The one who's just there already? Uh, That holds 200 billion galaxies in the hollow of his hand? Who is this? He's the one that has personally invited you? Who are you to respond with a snarl and a snicker when that God has condescended to invite you to live with him? For those of you who are seeing the parade of victory for the very first time, come. For those who have seen it but have not chosen to leave behind the allegiance to Saul and go serve David, come. For those who have been hindered at the cave's mouth, desiring to enter in but overwhelmed by the sense of unworthiness, personal filthiness, and weakness, come. For those of you who have wandered away from the cave because the pillow was too hard and you had expected tempurpedic pleasure, come. Return to the cave. Your pillow still awaits. For those of you who have been living in the cave, this is some of us in here. I want you to listen very closely. 
For those of you who have been living in the cave but have forgotten the true privilege of this hallowed hall, remember, repent of your apathy, sing fresh praises to your deserving king, bend your knee afresh before his gracious and loving throne. Do you see the grandeur of our God? You may have been in the cave the whole time, just like the older brother in the story of the prodigal. Oh, there the whole time. You have access to his presence. Don't blockade the, the cave door from those that want to come in, even those that have ran out and said, I can't live with a rock for a pillow. Cherish the fact that you are in the presence of your king, the king of all kings. Repent of your apathy and freshly give everything up to Jesus Christ. Outmanned, outgunned, and outlawed. Who's in? Who chooses this life? We do. Are we the biggest kooks or what? To the world we are. In heaven it's called wisdom. We see reality. We have an eternal perspective, an eternal priority, and as a result to us, it's logical sense. Yeah, if that's God, he has created all these things. He has condescended to love me and to give me a means of rescue. Why in the world would I say no? My answer is yes. And someone could say, but don't you realize what life on this earth could be like then? Sure, but don't you realize what life on the other side of life on this earth is going to be like if you don't? To me, it's just plain logic. But it's not just trying to escape hell. It's to find him. It's to know him. It's to have him. That's what we have. It's not just to choose a cave because, uh, you know, logically, I'd, if I choose a cave now, then I won't have a cave later, you know, in eternal torment. No, I want him now and always. What would lead a man to gladly leave riches, position, fame, worldly power, and earthly comforts behind? What would cause a man to gladly embrace the disdain, mockery, and revilement of the world for the pleasures of his king? What could possibly motivate a man to gladly suffer, endure hardship, dangers, tortures, and extreme privations for the expansion of his ruler's fame and renown? What could cause a man to smile at the notion of a painful death if it be for the sake of the kingdom and the glory of his master? Well, have you seen the beloved shepherd who fights for his sheep? When you see this, when you see the, the, the amazing beloved shepherd who when a lion comes against his sheep, what does he do? He sprints after and breaks his jaw and removes the prey from his teeth. When you see that beloved shepherd who runs after the bear and destroys him to preserve his flock, and then you see that same beloved shepherd stand in when his people are endangered by the giant of Goliath, also known as the giant of sin and death, and he goes and personally faces him on all our behalf, and he sprints out there and beheads him. I say, I choose him as my king, not the cowardly Saul who has no remedy for our preservation. He cannot deliver me. He, Jesus Christ, has delivered me. You want to know why I'll give up everything in this earth to have just one moment in his house? Have you seen Jesus Christ? If you have, you would never choose the things of this world. If you've me ever measured the universe with the measurement of light, with the measurement of truth, you would never choose the things of this earth to satisfy anymore. The motive for the Christ-purchased man, the reason we do what we do, the reason I do what I do, it's for love. I want Jesus. I love Jesus. 
I want to be where Jesus is. If he's in a cave, I want to be in that cave. If he's in heaven, I want to be in heaven. I want to be where he is. We mustn't fear the hollow of hell, for we are blood-bought. When you enter into Jesus by faith, you are secured in his life. If God could ever clamp down, if, if death could ever get him, if judgment could ever fall again, it still has no sting, no hold on God. But it will not. It's satisfied in Jesus Christ. He has defeated the grave. He has overcome it. So therefore, when you enter into him, the grave cannot clamp down on you. Therefore, you do not fear the hollow of hell. There's no reason to, because Jesus cannot be swallowed up in that grave. So what Charles Spurgeon writes about that is pretty profound. He says, you remember that when Pharaoh told Moses that the men among the children of Israel might go into the wilderness to offer sacrifice, he said that they must leave their little ones behind. But Moses would not accept that condition. So imagine Jesus is sent on to heaven. All right, you can go. You can go. Yeah, we acknowledge you're without sin. So you can go. However, what does Moses say? I will not leave the little ones behind. But Moses would not accept that condition. The next time Pharaoh said, go, serve the Lord. Let, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses answered, you must give us also sacrifices and burnt offerings that may we sacrifice unto the Lord our God. Our cattle also shall go with us. There shall not a hoof be left behind. That is an amazing statement. There is not a hoof that shall be left behind. Out of the nation of Israel, not a hoof will be left behind. All that was of Israel was to go with Israel. And that is still our master's will and way. He says, where I am, there shall my people be also. If I am in the grave, they must be in the grave too, buried with me. If I rise, they shall also rise, for I will not rise without them. And if I go to heaven, I will not go without them. This is our joy. And with dear old Rowland Hill, we can sing. Listen to this poem. And this I do find, we two are so joined, he'll not be in glory and leave me behind. Oh, that is amazing. I'm going to read it again. And this I do find, we two are so joined, he'll not be in glory and leave me behind. We go where he goes, forever and always. If you don't love Jesus, that would be miserable. But when you do, it is truly heaven. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.